Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all of your word, even a list of names, that even in the midst of the uh, names, they are your inspired word. They're given to us. They're a great gift and they instruct us. They tell us who you are and what you've come to do um, in and among us. And so this morning as we gather, Father, may our hearts be stirred as we think about um, you giving your son to be a savior to save us from our sin. Like in all of the busyness, even of a, a Christmas gathering, that may we just be present with you with that truth. That this is, a, this is telling us the coming of the Messiah, the coming of your son, who would save your people from our sins. Lord, it's in your name we pray, amen. Thank you, you can be seated. First, I wanna say that um, Pastor Derek is not in trouble. Um, that wasn't punishment for anything. He didn't lose a bet. He's not being censured at all in, ha in having to read the, the genealogy of Jesus, but um, they include the genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus is included in Andrew Peterson's um, musical, Behold the Lamb. And so it's actually a song. And so Derek has probably sung it more than anybody I know in here, but maybe anybody in Frankfurt. And so uh, I, I just wanted to see if he could read it and not sing it. I thought he was going to rap it. Like, you know, I thought, man, you could at least do it to a tune. But nevertheless, he did a, a fantastic job. And so uh, what I want us to do is I want us to focus in, and I know it's a little bit peculiar to start off uh, a Christmas service with the genealogy of Jesus, but I know it doesn't seem very exciting. I know it may seem like a like we just ripped a page out of the phone book and you just read it. But here's the truth that throughout the genealogy of Jesus, what we have is we have really a, a, an announcement of the gospel that is to come. The gospel that Jesus is ushering in is being whispered throughout this genealogy. And so I, I, I hope to be able to, to kind of pull this out. Uh, it isn't surprising that Matthew would start his gospel account with the genealogy because Matthew's vocation is, um, he's a tax collector. That's what he did for a living. And so both Matthew in Matthew, the first chapter and Luke as well, Luke inc includes a genealogy in the third chapter of Luke. Uh, but Luke's telling like a, he's given a, a, a detailed, accurate account. Luke was a doctor. Matthew, a little bit different. Matthew's a tax collector. He's a Jew. And so as a tax collector, Matthew isn't just collecting money and giving it to Rome, but as part of the tax collection process, like Matthew is overseeing kind of the, the, the genealogies. Matthew's overseeing the whole census that's coming out. So remember why uh, Mary and Joseph go into Bethlehem, the city of David. They go there because Caesar Augustus has decreed a census to be taken. And part of that whole process of census was to try to determine who belonged where, but also to determine uh, fair taxation or maybe unfair taxation. And so Matthew would be the one that would have the information. He would be collecting that. He would be overseeing that. And so that is why Matthew includes a genealogy here. Yes, it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it's also uh, the way the Bible's being written. God's using men and he's using their, their gifts and their personalities and working through these men in order to, to, to give his inspired word. And so Matthew's the one that's gonna have this information. So Matthew includes that. But more than just gathering information, more than just a list of names, this is an announcement of the gospel. This isn't just telling us about the birth of a baby or even the birth of Jesus, but it's telling us about the coming of a Messiah, the rescuer. And so uh, for the next few minutes, I just wanna give you a little bit of history about each one of these names that's included. No, I'm kidding. 
I won't do that to you. I want to pull out these four, uh, I don't know, four truths, four things I want to talk about from the genealogy of Jesus. And that's this, one promise. I want to talk about one promise, two men, although there's a list of men, but two men in particular, three eras, not errors, but eras, periods of time. And then lastly, four outcasts. One promise, two men, three eras, and four outcasts. Number one is one promise. Why start with the genealogy? Here's why, because Jesus is a human being. He's a person, he's a man. He's a man like um, you and I are, are, those of us who are men, but he's a human like you and I are human with real parents and real grandparents and real great-grandparents and with a real genealogy. Matthew's account doesn't start with once upon a time. It doesn't start with uh, in, in a, uh, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It doesn't begin like that, but it begins with him telling a story. It begins with a, an accurate account of a human being who was born. Jesus isn't a mythological creature. He isn't a demigod. He isn't a half god. He isn't a Marvel comic book hero. Jesus is a human. R.C. Sproul told a story um, in, in a sermon one time about a missionary who was with the Wycliffe Bible translators who went into a, a remote part of the world to, to reach an unreached people group. And as she worked with this people group, they spoke a particular language and a particular dialect. And then she found out that they had no written language. It was a spoken language alone. And so her job was to translate hopefully the Bible, but certainly the New Testament to a group of people that had no written language. And so the first thing she had to do, she had to learn their language. Second thing she had to do is she had to learn how to write. She had to create an alphabet and teach these people their now written language and teach them to read. And then alongside of that, what she did was she translated um, a portion of the Bible and she chose the book of Matthew to translate, to give those people, to teach them to read. She's gonna teach them to read Matthew. And, it started, and instead of starting with the genealogy, she thought she would clean it up a little bit. So she started with the birth of Christ and she painstakingly translated the book of Matthew into this new written language. She taught it to the people. She had Matthew published. And the day that the trucks arrived into the remote village to distribute the book of Matthew, the people were far more excited about the trucks than they were with the book of Matthew. They got Matthew and years went by of her teaching them to read. And later on, as she translated the rest of the New Testament, this time she went back to Matthew and she began with the genealogy. When that book arrived, one of the tribal leaders got a hold of the book and he read it and he summoned the woman, the missionary to come. And he said, wait a minute. You mean to tell me this story about this Jesus you're telling me is about a human being? Like I thought it was just make-believe. I thought it was a mythological creature you were telling me, but when he read the genealogy, he understood that this is a real man we're speaking about here. And that's why Matthew begins here. Matthew begins as a way because in the genealogy would have been a, a Jewish person's pedigree. It would have been the resume. I mean, for you and I as Americans, uh, most of us, we, we may pay a little bit of attention to our genealogy, maybe as a hobby, maybe to try to figure something out. I mean, the new ancestry, you know, stuff's out there that you can do. In fact, my parents, uh, they got kind of got into that. I don't know what the spin was, but my grandfather on my 
on my maternal side, my grandfather had always told us that there was Cherokee Indian in our, in our, in our heritage. And so my dad was kind of fascinated by that. I don't know for whatever reason, he probably tried to figure out where his land was or what his rights were or something. There was some kind of spin or twist to it, no doubt. And so they did the swabbing of the cheek and the sending it off and it came back. And I asked my dad, I said, well, what's our ancestry? And he said, 100% without any shadow of a doubt, Andy, it's a Kentucky redneck. That's our history. That's your lineage, bro. Okay, I figured that, right? For us, it's kind of a hobby, but for in this time, especially in this society, in this culture, it was your resume and it was your pedigree. But even more than that, as he's telling this story, as he's telling this genealogy, I'm sorry, as he's telling this genealogy, what Matthew wants us to make sure that we understand is this genealogy, this Jesus that's being born here, this human being that has come into this world, he is the fulfillment of one promise made by our creator, one promise by an eternal God that has been given. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. This promise comes, this one promise comes through promises given throughout the Old Testament. We'll get there next year. But all of the covenants point to one person. They point to Jesus. Here is the promise. It is the promise of the coming or the giving of a man, a human who will be a royal savior, who will bring God's blessing of salvation to the nations. That's the promise that's been given. It's the promise that has come down through. It has come, it's come down through Noah and through Abram through Moses, through David, all the way down to us. It is the fulfillment of that, the coming of this man, a Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, who will be just that, a royal, a kingly Savior, who will bring God's blessing of salvation to the nations. The promise actually began before the creation ever, before this earth was ever created. It began before Genesis 1. It began before all of that Jesus has always been the lamb who was slain before the very foundation of the world. But the first time we hear of this promise is in Genesis chapter three, on the heels of our rebellion from God, on the heels of the fall of man. And we'll get there in three, in just four weeks, I think it is. We'll be right there in Genesis chapter three. What we're gonna see is right after man rebelled from God, God is levying the punishment for man's disobedience in the garden and God makes this promise. He speaks it to the serpent, to Satan. He says this, I will put enmity, that's war, that's strife between you, that's Satan, and the offspring, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. That's a human, that's offspring, that's a, that's a person, that's a man. He shall bruise your head, that's a warrior, and you shall bruise his heel, that is sacrifice. And that's the first whispers of the gospel ever given in the Bible. Happens in the third chapter, the 15th verse of the book of Genesis. What we have here, Matthew records for us, is that genealogy. He's, he's telling us the story through, through, through the genealogy of the coming of this human warrior king who will lay down his life as a sacrifice for us, this Jesus. The genealogy of Jesus is the coming of Jesus. It's the coming of Jesus to fulfill the promise of God. This is the announcement of Jesus's birth. It's announcement, it's not advice. Announcement is something that has happened. 
It's something that someone else has done. It's a birth announcement. That's what this is. This isn't advice. Advice is something that you must do, something you must listen and something you must heed. And this isn't telling us that. This isn't giving us godly advice. This is giving us, this is telling us, this is announcing to us what God has done, the coming of Christ, the birth of Christ, the sending of a savior into the world to save us from our sins. The fulfillment of the promise of God is an announcement. It's an announcement you don't save yourself. You can't save yourself, but you needed a savior to come. And that savior has come. He's been born on this earth. He's here. He's in the city of David. That's what he was saying. He's walked among us and he's come to save us. He's come to undo undo the curse of God and to save us from our sin. One promise being fulfilled in this little baby being born Two men also, two men, look at chapter one, verse one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Let's take them in chronological order in the way that they happen in the Old Testament. So we'll take Abraham first, and then we wanna talk about David. Abraham is, um, is the father of the Jewish nation. And so that's the point of what, Matthew is saying that Jesus was, that's what's been promised. Jesus was a Jew. Now today, if someone was to say that they're Jewish, that means they would be pointing to the religion. But here, as Matthew records this, he's not just pointing to Jesus's religion, but he's pointing to his ethnicity. It's pretty impossible for a Jew today to be able to trace back their lineage and say, well, I come from such and such tribe, although they will try, but they really can't do it. But in this time, that was a big deal. That was a huge deal. But more than just even saying that he was ethnic, pure in his ethnicity, it's to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of that one promise. See, that promise that comes, it comes to a man, one man, and that man is Abraham. And you find that in Genesis, the 12th chapter. And for the ladies in the room, you're gonna be there on January the 15th. That's why we're gonna start in Genesis. We're gonna fast forward a little bit in our, in our study in Genesis and you're gonna start in Genesis, the 12th chapter. It starts with, uh, class is called Beginnings and it starts with, uh, um, it's gonna start with Abraham is where it's gonna start. And we were gonna have it in the conference room. We had it all set up. We're getting ready for it. And then there's so, been so many ladies talking about it that we've moved it into the cafe. And so we're really super excited about you all being there and participating with that. And then the men later on, uh, closer to spring, we're gonna be pick right up in Genesis, the 12th chapter. You're gonna get there as you're doing your Bible reading plan. Did Pastor Brian tell you all about that? We got these little cards made up. Aren't they nice? You can put them in your, your Bible. Like, you know, not, you can't, I, mean, I guess you could take a picture of this and put it on your phone, but this is why Bibles are good. Maybe for Christmas, you can ask your spouse or your parents or somebody to buy you a Bible, an actual Bible. Like, not that that's not a Bible on your phone. It's just always hard for me to read Holy Scripture on the same thing that, you know, I get on Facebook on. But nevertheless, you, you do, you know, you do you. I understand new technologies, new times. We don't have scrolls anymore. We got books and now you have phones. I understand that, but I'm just saying, be great to have this, see how that works. It fits in there like a bookmark and then you can read it and your Bible reading plan on the back and each day, uh, I wanted checks, a place for check marks, but we just couldn't get them there. But you can put little lines through it and you can read through. You can read through the entire storyline of the Bible, not the entire Bible. Um, it's 260 readings, relatively short, just like most of them are one or two chapters a, a day that you're gonna be reading. Not like some of the reading plans where you feel like you're reading forever. It's not like that. Huge chunks of Leviticus, we've 
edited those out. Not to say they're not holy or inspired or part of sacred writ. You, you following me? But they just can get a little monotonous. Some of the accounts in Kings and Chronicles are the same story. So that's cut out. So you've got just 260 readings. You could do that on the front. So, I mean, it's just nice, right? It's nice to have. So we can follow along. You're going to be there in Genesis uh, 12th chapter. And what you're going to find in Genesis 12th chapter is God shows up and chooses this guy by the name of Abram. And God tells this guy, he makes a promise to this guy. And here's the promise. The promise is from your offspring, it's going to come a blessing that's going to bless the entire world through you. This nobody person that God just chooses, this person named Abram. And now here's the problem. Abram doesn't even have a kid, right? He doesn't even have a son, let alone many sons. And God's going to bless the entire, all the inhabitants of the earth are going to be blessed through this guy. And he don't, he, he doesn't have a son, let alone many sons. On top of that, he's old, like really, really old, like past his prime old. And on top of that, his wife is barren. I said, okay, God, but listen, this is what scripture says. When God spoke that promise to him, here's what he did. He believed God. He believed him. And God fulfilled his promise and God gives him Isaac and goes all the way through. And through this lineage, Isaac begats Jacob. And through that, you have Israel and you have the 12 tribes who become, it moved from a family to a nation. And through that lineage comes Jesus. Through that promise that Jesus is the fulfillment of Abram's promise that it's through Christ that all the nations, all the inhabitants of the earth are blessed through Jesus as Jesus gives his life for them. In fact, that's why Jesus says his last words on earth as he ascends into heaven is the great commission. And remember part of the great commission is go therefore and make disciples where? Of all the earth. Make disciples of all the nations. And what you have then, that's the fulfillment of Genesis uh, chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 is the great commission. It's the same thing we find in Matthew 28. And we're doing that and fulfilling that like missionaries who, like that lady who went into desolate spaces and time and places to share the gospel with people. We're doing that. We're fulfilling that as a fulfillment to date to uh, the promise made to the son of Abram. Matthew says he's the son of Abram, but he's also the son of David. Not only is Jesus a, a Jewish, but Jesus is also a king. David is the king chosen by God, and he is a warrior king. And in 2 Samuel 7, it's king, God makes a promise to King David and says, a descendant of yours will be on the throne forever. And Matthew shows us this. He shows us that Jesus is a descendant in the royal line. That Jesus, that Joseph and Mary, they're going into Bethlehem, which is the city of David. That's because there is descendants of David. In fact, both Joseph and Mary are both descendants of David. Luke, um, as I mentioned, Matthew's given us a genealogy and Matthew's genealogy is the genealogy of Joseph. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, a descending, make sure I'm right. Yeah, it's a descending gene genealogy. Matthew starts with Abraham and goes all the way down, begat, 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 the father of the father of, as, as Pastor Derek read, all the way down to Joseph, who is the husband of Mary. It's the genealogy of Jesus's adopted father, Joseph. But then you would say, wait a minute. If Jesus is adopted into the family, then what about the bloodline? There's no purity of the bloodline. Well, listen, Mary 
is a descendant of David as well. That's what Luke is doing in his genealogy. So if you ever compare the genealogies, you're gonna say, wait a minute, they don't line up, they don't match up. That's because one's for Joseph, the other is for Mary. Luke's genealogy is an ascending genealogy. It starts with Jesus and it ascends actually all the way to Adam. And it too goes through David. David with a different wife. David with the wife and Nathan produced Mary. So the bloodline is intact in Jesus. But Jesus is the child of promise. He is, and he is a Jew, but he's also the king of that promise. And how shall Jesus, as King Jesus, how shall he rule? Shall he rule by the law or by the letter of the law? How shall he rule? Shall he rule with an iron fist? No, here's how he rules. He rules by grace. And in fact, as we read the genealogy of Jesus, it's dripping with grace. That as you really think about these people, and if you have a working knowledge of who they are in the Old Testament, that you see God's great grace coming out of the pages uh, from these people, from simple names, and they begat who, but when you understand what's happening here, you, you get grace all over you. That's what happens. You got two heroes of the faith in these two men. And in Abraham and in David, for both the Jews and the Christians, we would say they're great heroes of the faith, but they're also both sinners. They're two men who are two sinners, as if God could use anyone else, but nevertheless, they certainly are sinners. Imagine David, a man who sinned so egregious with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered. Not just, not just her husband, but when David's fleeing from King Saul, Armies are after David and David gathers up a, a, a band of warriors beside him. They're called David's mighty men. And these are men that would lay down their lives for, for David. And Uriah the Hittite is one of David's mighty men. He's a man who gave up, would have, willing have given up his life for David. He's not just a general in David's army, although that's who he ascends to be, but this is a friend, a trusted friend. And David steals his wife and then has him murdered. David the polygamist, David the sexually immoral, David a terrible father. And this is one of the ways we know that the Bible is true. I mean, if you were just writing a story of make-believe, would you write horrible people that become heroes like David into that storyline? You wouldn't. You would leave those out. But the Bible is telling us something that's true and it's actual and it's factual and it really did take place. David who slaughtered multitudes of people, he slaughtered so many people that his hands were too bloody to build God's temple. And Abraham, Abraham lied about his wife in Egypt and brought shame upon them both. That was kind of Abraham, that's, that's kind of what he did. When times got tough, Abraham would tell a lie to get out of it. Abraham who believed God and yet he also at times disbelieved God. Abraham who committed adultery with Hagar, the two sinners are the seed of the son of God and that's grace. It's a reminder to us that as we think about God's plan, as we think about God's promises, that on God's side, there's only faithfulness. On God's side, there's only promise keeping. On God never does any wrong. God never slights anyone. God always keeps his covenant, always keeps his promise. But on the human side, it's a story of weakness and a story of failure and a story of apostasy and a story of idolatry and stories of sin that even in the strongest and best characters, that's why we need grace. 
one promise, two men, three eras. Matthew breaks down the genealogy of Jesus into three eras. In verse number 17, it's kind of the summation of this. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David, there are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon are 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the, to, to the Christ are 14 generations. Can, can I share something with you and you not think of me as a, as a loon? Like there's something about numbers in the Bible, right? Um, there's the number 40 that shows up multiple times. The number seven, as we're gonna talk about here. Now, listen, if you take that too far, it's called numerology in the Bible. And if you take it too far, um, you can easily make mistakes and you can apply things that never meant, were meant to apply. But this is one of them that I think, I, I, that I think um, we could be right on. That what you have here, again, is 14, 14, 14. And so what you actually have is you have two sets of seven that make up 14. And so what you have in Jesus, so you've got two, two, and two. So what you have in Jesus is Jesus is the seventh. I can't believe I'm saying this, but this and this, and this I, we may, could be right. Jesus is the seventh set of seven of generations from Abraham down which seven um, means, what it means is a, it's the number of completion. That's why there's seven days of creation because it's a completed creation. And what it's saying is Jesus is completing the creation and ushering in a new creation. And second is seven is also the day of rest, right? The Sabbath. And the same thing, Jesus is the one who's fulfilling the week and bringing us rest. That's one of the things that it's saying here, but also what it's saying here is as it breaks it down, it's kind of categorizing it by kind of uh, um, these, these events and by these men. You've got Abraham to David, and then you've got David to the exile. Talk about that, the captivity into Babylon, and then from that until Christ. And from Abraham to David, that's the era of patriarchs. That is for the most part, as I said earlier, they're sinful men, but they're great men. You've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. You've got judges, you got prophets like, like even Moses. It is for the most time, it's a, it's a period of greatness. It's the promise that comes and it's God fulfilling it. Yes, you've got years of slavery in there, but nevertheless, you see God's fulfillment of the promise and the people coming to be. And, and David, the, 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 the nations are, the nation of Israel kind of is having its, its heyday into David and into Solomon. So you have this period of greatness and then David comes on the scene and from David to exile, that's the era of monarchy. It really starts with the people's desire for a king. They ask God, God, give us a king. But here's the deal. It was always in God's plan to give them a king. Again, the Messiah is a king. But what they ask for is we want a king like all the other nations have kings. We want a king like him, even in character, not just to be with them and have a king, but we want a, we want a strong and a mighty king. And so they chose for themselves King Saul, who was a, he was a terrible, he was a train wreck. He was just like all the other nations' kings. He didn't love the Lord didn't lead them into worship. He was terrible. And then comes King David, the promised one of God, the one chosen by God. So if Abraham to David, all the way to David, is really a period of ascendancy. It's growing and gaining. As Israel goes from non-existence to now an empire, now a city with walls and buildings and all of those things, and even turns into an empire. But really, then starting with David's sin with Bathsheba is you see it beginning to decline. I mean, that's really where the wheels fall off is David's murder or David's sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. David's sexual sin impacts David's family. 
impacts the whole nation of Israel. I mean, there's a lesson in there for us to learn. You never sin in isolation. Your sin affects other people. Men, especially in the areas of our sexual sin, it affects your family, forever changes your family. There's a lesson in there for us in that as well. It impacts the whole nation of Israel. From David following, you have what could be considered those glory days under Solomon, but Solomon turns out to be a train wreck as well as he takes in wives from other nations and country. And then you just, from Solomon on, you just have tragedy upon tragedy. You get into this uh, a cycle where you'll have a good king like Jehoshaphat or Hezekiah or Josiah, but they're then follow on the heels of that are Rehoboam's and Manasseh's and other evil men. It really could be, especially toward the end, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's an era of apostasy and idolatry and sin. That's really what it is. And it leads with God's punishment on the people. God was a big fan of uh, timeout. Put the children of Israel in timeout in the wilderness. He put Adam and Eve in timeout as he kicked them out of the garden. And he put the children of Israel here. He put the nation of Israel in timeout as they were carted off into captivity into Babylon. He picks up there from exile to Christ. That's the third era. era. From captivity into Christ. You know what's in the, included in that era? Gosh, not much good. Yes, they're able to go back into the city walls of Jerusalem, but Jer- Jerusalem's leveled by the Babylonians. It's flattened. There's a time under Ezra where things look good, but then those quickly fall on a period of time of 400 years of silence and darkness. I mean, it's no mistake that when we do Advent, we call that a period of time of waiting because that's where humanity was waiting on the Messiah. And we start off with candles that are unlit. That's to represent darkness. Like if we could get it dark in here, we would start off with just darkness in the room because that's really where it is. The 400 years without a prophet in Israel, 400 years where they don't hear from God. I mean, we can even look at this time now and we can say, gosh, these are dark times and they are dark times. Don't make mistakes. These are immoral times. These are hard times, difficult times. That itself, that, that, that much is true, but these are also good times. And we still have God's word and we have the power of the spirit and we have the flourishing of his church. Places like us here in America, we still have religious liberties where we can gather together like this. I mean, it, it's not darkness, complete darkness, and yet we're still in a time of waiting. And this much we can say though, generation after generation after generation, this much we can say is God's promises always come true. God may take his time. God may take his time, 14 generations, right? After 14 generations, after 14 generations, God may take his time, but God always keeps his promises. And there's one promise that we're waiting on now. We're in a season of waiting. That's why of Advent, it's a season of waiting and then Christ comes and you and I, we're in a season of waiting as well as we wait on the second return of Christ. And if God kept his promise here, how much more will God keep his promise in the future? In the waiting season that you and I are in, how much more will God keep his promise here that God's not slack in keeping his promises, but God is faithful 
in keeping his promises. Christ will come again. And when he returns, he will make every sad thing come untrue. Lastly, four outcasts. Now, it just so happens that the four outcasts are also four women mentioned in the genealogy. There's five women mentioned here, but we'll leave Mary uh, alone, but we'll speak about the four that Matthew draws attention to. Now, we know there are more than four in Jesus' genealogy. There's, you know, one for every man, but nevertheless, Matthew specifically mentions um, these four women under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's a little odd that any women would be mentioned in a genealogy, but here Matthew mentions these four. He's deliberately recalling and telling this some of the most uh, sordid, nasty, and immoral incidents in the Bible. The four women are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and then um, he doesn't mention her by name, but Bathsheba. Tamar you'll find in Genesis 38. Judah was the father of uh, Paraz, see, that's why I didn't read it. And Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, that's verse three. And Tamar um, is a woman who tricks her father-in-law, Judah, into sleeping with her. Even though in the fullness of the story, it's clear that Judah um, has been unjust to her, but nevertheless, she commits this act of incest, even though everywhere in the Bible, everywhere under the law of God would have been understood that this would have been wrong. And even though Jesus is from Perez, not Zerah, but Matthew includes both to make sure that we understand the whole story. It is out of that dysfunctional mess that the Messiah would come. Rahab, who is a, what's her vocation? Anybody remember? She's a prostitute, that's right. Rahab the harlot, Rahab the prostitute. The spies will go into Jericho, they'll hide in Rahab's house. Not only is Rahab a prostitute, but she's also a Canaanite, which that is outside the Jewish covenant. Tamar, who is a moral outsider. Rahab, who is a who is a outside of the covenant. She's an ethnic outsider, a cultural outsider. The same could be said of Ruth. Ruth's godly, she's good. Boaz is godly and good, but Ruth is a Gentile. She's an outcast. She's not a descendant of Abraham. A cultural outsider is included here. And then lastly, the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba isn't named. I think that's not, not to dishonor her. I think it's more to, to dishonor and to slam David than it is to speak out against Bathsheba. I really feel like she was fairly innocent in this situation. Hard to tell a king no and keep your life. But nevertheless, it's out of that dysfunctional family. It's out of that deeply flawed man, David, that the Messiah comes. It's out of that immoral relationship that God even is able to work. Now, listen, moral outsiders and adulterers and adulteresses and incestual relationships and prostitutes and cultural and racial outsiders, and yet from that family comes the Son of God, Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Hey, that means this on Christmas Day, on Wednesday, when you're surrounded by your family, like cheer up, right? <laughs> like if God can use a dysfunctional mess like this and bring good out of it, then he can use the dysfunctional mess that is your family and bring good out of it. That even though culturally they may be moral outsiders, they may be cultural outsiders, they may have been all of these things as outsiders, yet that is who Christ has come for, the outsiders. 
It reminds us that those on the outside can be brought inside. It means that no one is too far from God. It's a reminder that it is not the good people who are in and the bad people are out. It's a reminder that we were all outsiders and Christ has come. Christ has been born in a manger. Christ has come to take the outsiders and bring them inside by our faith in him, by his work and our belief and our trust in his work. And it is the grace of God. That's why I said this genealogy is dripping with grace and it is. And what Christ does for us is by grace and grace alone. Sam Alberry, a preacher and an author, he tweeted this out. He said, Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, it includes the outcast, the scandalous, and the foreigner. The family Jesus comes from anticipates the family he has come for, which is us, that we were all outsiders. And Christ has come to be born to live the life that you and I could not live. Perfect, holy, righteous, to keep God's perfect law on our behalf. To die the death that he did not deserve, but the death that you and I deserve. That Christ dies on a cross as a substitute. He's giving up his life as a substitute for us. He's giving up his life as a punishment for sin. Who sinned? Jesus never sinned for those who believe in him, for those who trust in him, that our sin is accredited to Christ on the cross at the moment of your faith in him. Your sin is accredited to him. 2,000 years ago, it gets accredited to him. And Christ's perfection of who he is as the perfect son of God gets accredited to you. That's the gospel. And what do you do what must you do? You don't do anything. Again, it's not advice for you to listen and to heed. It's announcement of what he's come to do. When announcement is given, guess what you do? You listen to it, you hear it, you believe it, you receive it. And that is what you do with Jesus. You heed him, you listen, you believe him, and you believe upon him. And goodness, is it trite to say that that's the best gift to be given? Is there a better one out there? Right, the commercial with the big bow and the car and the driveway, is there a better one out there? I mean, that mug's gonna break down someday. And Jesus is never gonna fail you, never gonna leave you, never gonna forsake you. All your sin for his grace. What a wonderful exchange. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you love sinners like us enough to send your son to die for us. You love those on the outside so much that Christ would be born to come for those on the outside to bring us in, to take us from our own dysfunction and bring us into your perfection. Thank you. Lord, may we, as we remember, as we remember your birth, may we more than that remember your death. As we come to a time, Lord, 
of um, your supper that you've instituted for us. We remember the sacrifice that you are. In your name we pray, amen.